And that was really curious about the Parvati Valley is that most of the people who've disappeared there, their bodies have never been found. And there's very, very little evidence or or anecdotes about what might have happened in their final days. And so, it, you know, that's why it has kind of earned itself this unfortunate nickname as India's backpacker Bermuda Triangle, because people literally disappear. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts. Today I explore the mysterious disappearance of Justin Alexander, a charismatic traveler and Instagram personality who went missing in the Indian Himalayas back in 2016. Joining me is journalist Harley Rustad, whose book about Justin's life and disappearance debuts in bookstores today. The book is called Lost in the Valley of Death, and it traces the life of Justin Alexander from his days as a young survivalist and punk musician and tech entrepreneur up through his decision to wander the earth and share his travel stories on platforms like Instagram and YouTube. Justin is, in a way, his own generation's version of Christopher McCandless of Into the Wild fame, who went missing and was later found dead in Alaska. What makes Justin's story particularly interesting for me is that he'd read my book Vagabonding and had reached out about it to me by Facebook message not long before we went missing. More about my Facebook message exchange with Justin and the interview itself. Holly and I also talk about how a lot of travelers have gone missing in India's Parvati Valley in the last 30 years. We talk about a condition called India Syndrome and how it affects travelers who venture to that part of the world. We talk about what Justin's mindset might have been like before he went missing and how performing his travels on social media affected the way he traveled. Now, if you live in the United States and you'd like a copy of Lost in the Valley of Death, just email me at deviatedrolfpots.com. And if you're one of the first 10 people to land in my inbox, I'll send you a copy of the book or a book by another one of my recent podcast guests. Again, that's deviatedrolfpots.com. For now, please enjoy my interview with Harley Rustad. We start by talking about how he came to learn about Justin's fate. Let's listen in. This story about a traveler named Justin Alexander um, sort of came onto some people's radar because they followed him on social media. Other people knew about him because he disappeared in India after becoming somewhat well-known on social media. And it's sort of a strange way to get into a story. It's it's similar, actually, to people like Christopher McCandless um, from Into the Wild or Timothy Treadwell um, from Grizzly Man, wherein you come into the story sort of knowing what happened but as a journalist or storyteller, that leaves you with questions like, who was this person and why were they doing what they were doing and how did this happen? So I'm curious, Harley, how you learned about Justin's story and what made you want to tell it uh, first for Outside Magazine and later for your new book? Yeah, so I came across this story because um, I've been interested in India for a very long time and I had spent a couple years there initially on sort of a classic post-undergraduate degree, wandering, uh, trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. Uh, And then I went back for another year uh, to work as a journalist um, for a Canadian newspaper and to freelance. And so I had become kind of fascinated with India as a destination for travelers, both people who want to climb mountains, who want to pursue uh, spirituality, uh, and all sorts of reasons why people are drawn there. And So I'd been quite connected with the country and in the fall of 2016 came across a short news article about an American man, an American backpacker who had mysteriously and curiously disappeared in this place called the Parvati Valley, which is this tiny sliver of of Himalayan India that I had heard about when I first went there in, in 2008. And it was honestly, I think it was two pictures that really struck me initially uh, one was of Justin reclining inside this ca- candlelit cave uh, cave in the Himalayas where he had been living for three weeks before he disappeared. And the other was of this sadhu, this Hindu holy man who had guided him to this holy lake on this final pilgrimage. And the sadhu had returned and Justin had not. And it was these two images that really struck me uh, initially. And a lot of questions about what might have happened there uh, what drew him to India initially. And and so I kind of set out initially to figure out what had happened there, but also what had drawn him to India and and uh, and what had pushed him to such a degree to go on this this very high altitude remote trek 
uh, to this holy lake in, in the mountains. Yeah, it's sort of a multi-layered mystery that not only encompasses what happened to him, why, why and how did he disappear, but also who was this guy? I mean, he lived an extraordinary life. He sort of performed uh, an extraordinary life on social media at a time when that was a fairly new thing. And it's interesting that you were an, an India person. It feels like travelers to Asia, or at least the southern and southeastern parts of Asia, either are Thailand people or India people. <laughs> and I was sort of a Thailand person. I, I've been to India, but I sort of cut my teeth in Thailand, and I have a, a strong affinity for Thailand and Southeast Asia. It feels like India is a little bit more hardcore. It attracts more of a hardcore traveler. Is that a fair assessment, or did you, do you see a mix of things? I think it draws, I mean, for decades, it's drawn uh, people for various reasons all the way back through early 20th century and up through the hippie trail years in the 60s and and 70s um, as this place of, you know, I can find myself there. Uh, You know, if the Buddha sat under a tree, then, you know, what can I discover when I go on a similar journey? And, And I think the modern version of it I don't know if it's necessarily a more extreme place to travel to. I think, I think you can, you can find extremities wherever you go. But I think it, it can be a very challenging place for for kind of the new traveler to set foot. And and it was you know one of the first places I traveled to internationally uh, when I was in my early twenties. I had gone to East Africa, a few countries in East Africa before, and and as a teenager traveled to Europe a couple times. But this was my first big trip, and I, you know, it was eleven months straight going to almost every state in the country, uh, and and a month up in Nepal. And what it does is it challenges you. It I, I don't know if there's another country that pushes you to such extremes and makes you question who you are and and your privilege and what you believe in and your faith and your trust on such a daily basis with every turn, pretty much everywhere in that country. There's very few places where you're allowed a moment to yourself, which is why a lot of people ultimately are gravi- gravitate to and end up in the Himalayas to kind of escape uh, these pressures that you find in places like Delhi and Mumbai and, and, and Kolkata. Just by sheer volume of people, this, this density of, of, of humanity that can often be very, very uncomfortable and so as a result, you get travelers who come back either hating it and rejecting it or absolutely loving it. And and I was, you know, I loved it. Well, it's interesting that uh, Justin was also a Thailand guy. He spent a lot of time, actually had some really meaningful experiences in Thailand before it almost felt to me like he pushed himself by finding adventures in India that were a little bit more extreme than the ones he found in Thailand. But let's look at him as a person. Let's rewind a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, this guy is named Justin Alexander, which is not his real name. It's it's sort of his persona name. Let's rewind to him in the United States Um and who was he? Where did he come from? And how did he end up being this world traveler that people followed on Instagram in the mid 2010s? Yeah, so he he was born um, in in the early 80s in in Florida, South Florida, down on the beach, and uh, spent you know the first 10, 11, 12 years of his life there um, before his parents separated. And he was a kid who was always drawn to nature. Uh, but that really started to manifest in his teenage years when his mom moved, took him away from Florida and moved to the West Coast, uh, to Oregon. And But he grew up kind of in the shadow of these great adventurers and, and particularly these great survivalists like Tom Brown Jr. Uh, of the Tracker School in New Jersey, who has this legendary name in survivalist and naturalist circles. And so he read all of Tom Brown's books. And when he came out to Oregon his mom realized that he wasn't kind of fitting in in high school and wasn't learning, um, wasn't being pushed and inspired in traditional education. So she withdrew him from high school and enrolled him in this wilderness awareness school, which is an offshoot of the tracker school uh, in Washington state in rural Washington state up in the forests. And so he spent his final uh, couple years of high school up there full time. And it's this incredible place where kids learn in the outdoors. They learn how to track animals, how to identify plants, and to practice these thing called, things called sit spots, where you go out to the same place day after day and, and just observe and reflect and notice these minute changes in nature. 
And so he was he grew up really steeped in this in this ideology of of natural and nature awareness, um, but also learned these incredible survival skills. So he was known, you know, he could start a fire um, uh, with basically nothing in faster than you can with a lighter, essentially. And he could he could go out for days as a teenager and and survive and and really kind of honed his skills uh, as a young kid and then was eventually brought out to the tracker school in New Jersey where he he, you know, put put his his burgeoning skills to the test among some really, you know, hardcore professionals out there and and built a name for himself. But he started undergoing these transformations and and when he moved out to San Francisco in in 2003, he kind of left all that behind and he emerged as this new this new person and joined a band and started this quite successful punk rock band based out of San Francisco that toured in Japan and and got this big following and and then he did that for a few years and then gave that all up and moved to moved back to Florida to Miami to work for this tech startup this you know quite successful tech startup where he was traveling the world you know high style staying in expensive hotels and and you know eating in michelin starred restaurants and did that for a few years made a ton of money and then completely quit his job gave away all his belongings and set out on this this multi-year journey that started with a Royal Enfield motorcycle traversing the United States and ultimately went international. This is really interesting because one metaphor we have to help understand uh, Justin Alexander is Christopher McCandless, the the protagonist of In the Wild, which was, you know, first a, a John Krakauer book and later became a Sean Penn movie. But Christopher McCandless was much younger. Basically, it, it feels like Justin Alexander lived a couple life cycles before he went into the wild, so to speak. I mean, one, he had a lot of training on surviving in the wild. Um, uh, he, he sort of grew up knowing how to survive in the wild. Then he became more, sort of a punk rock star for a while, mm-hmm. a, a low-key punk rock style star for a while. And then he became sort of almost like a tech bro or something, a, a very successful world-traveling, um, expensive hotel-staying guy for a while. Um and so I, I think one interesting um, difference between him and Christopher McCandless is McCandless was in his early 20s. Uh, Justin was in his early 30s by the time he set off uh, to wander the world. So what do you think the impetus was? He'd, he'd already been successful as a musician. He's a good-looking guy. He'd been successful in business. Why did he start wandering the earth in his early 30s? Well, I think we all have these various transition points in life. And the one that happens in our early 20s, you know, we often go to college or go to university, we leave home. And that can be a very tumultuous time, psychologically, socially. Um, and there's a lot of transitions that happen as we as we make new friends and we break free of our, our parents and all that kind of stuff. And I think McCandless felt, fell into that transition period. But I think another one happens in your late 20s, early 30s when, and particularly for this generation, which is, you know, entering the workforce a bit later, settling down later, getting married and having kids later, is this other big transition period, which is reality starts to hit home. And what do I actually want to do with my life? What job is actually fulfilling? Is the job that I hold truly fulfilling? Do I want to be somebody who is free and independent to travel the world on my own? Or do I want a family and kids and a white picket fence? And so I think Justin had dabbled in various iterations of who he wanted to be, a survivalist, a rock star, a tech bro, as you said, but ultimately realized that what he wanted was something extremely simple and on the road and with a small backpack and and completely independent. But I think he came to that after testing a few different options that were out there and hit that kind of natural transition period that, you know, I felt in my early 30s. And I think a lot of people these days feel in their early 30s, uh, a lot of big questions that we want answered. And some people find those answers in starting a family and having kids. And some people find those answers in quitting their job, giving away all their belongings and setting out to uh, to a place like India. 
Well, one interesting thing about Justin is that it feels like he was good at all of these things. He was a good survivalist. He was sort of the star of his school. His band was successful. Um, and then he made lots of money and saved lots of money in his tech bro phase. Um, and then he started traveling the world. He actually was a very impressive traveler by my understanding. And, and you can probably uh, flesh this out a little bit more, but he like he saved a toddler in Nepal by running it to a village half a day. Um, he stayed in the Mentawai Islands off the coast of Sumatra, where I stayed a few years ago. It's a very isolated place. It's a very fascinating place where people sort of live in a stone, edge way, stone age way. Uh, he spent time in Colombia and Brazil and Peru. Um, as a traveler, it feels like the choices that he made, he was just taking some interesting adventures. Um, so how did he transition into this and and what was he looking for? Yeah, I think he... I think he always had a bit of that spirit, even through all of these phases. And there was one interesting, you know, in my research and in all my interviews with people, you know, going back to some of the, for, to knew him as a teenager to all the way up to some of the last people to see him alive and all this research I did over the past few years, there was one document that I was given, a journal that w included this very intentional plan for his life. And it was written when he was working in the, at the tech company and he called it the Hero Project. And he was, a, he was really fascinated by Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey, mm. um, you know, which is this, this archetypal structure for, for mythologies. And that Star Wars and Lord of the Rings and all these, uh, these stories have been based on. Um, but he was very intentional. And, you know, as you said, he didn't dabble in things. He did things very, very, uh, very determinedly. And, and, and threw himself into them, whether he was on stage or working or traveling. And I think, it, I think what spurred him to, to ultimately quit his job and to give everything away and, and to embark on this, this final you know, three-year journey that was ultimately going to be indefinite as long as he could was in part a dissatisfaction with where he had come. He was making lots of money but he wasn't happy. He was, he was starting to have an influence over the world, but not in the way that he wanted. And I think he saw that what he wanted to do ultimately was to inspire people. He wanted to push himself to these extremes in the hope that somebody back home or somebody in their office or on their couch somewhere would be scrolling through Instagram and see this incredible location or, you know, the Mentawai people or, you know, trekking to a remote valley in Nepal or, you know, going to an ayahuasca ceremony uh, in Brazil, who will be inspired in some small way to follow in his footsteps. And I, so I think it, it came, I think the pressure for him and the push for him to ultimately embark on this journey came from a number of factors, a lot of questions within that he was trying to, trying to answer, but also this, this desire and this noticing that he could use start to use social media to inspire people that he I think he really adored and I think he got a lot of validation out of that um and obviously that's a you know a double-edged sword um that often you can get this wonderful validation for what you're doing uh as somebody on the road but also it can be it can be quite cutting and quite biting as well well, that's something I want to come back to because the fact that he performed this phase of his life, which turned out to be presumably the last phase of his life, is interesting and complicated. Uh, but I'm interested about these influences because actually there's a quote that you use in the book. I forget where you found it, but it's, uh, it's Joseph Campbell where he says, people say that we're seeking a meaning for life. I don't think that's what we're really seeking. I think that what we're seeking is the experience of being alive so that our life mm. experiences in the purely, purely physical plane will have phys resonances within our innermost being and reality so that we will actually feel the rapture of being alive. Um, and that's an entire, I, I remember watching that on uh, Power of Myth when I was in my early 20s. Um, and that sort of motivated me too, this idea of mm. seeking the experience of being alive versus... Um, looking for a meaning of life. Um, and it, it was interesting. You mentioned some of his influences. They're, they're pretty standard, like Jack London and Mark Twain and um, Jack Kerouac and, of course, um, Joseph Campbell. But there was also Sterling Hayden. 
Do you know how he found Sterling Hayden? Sterling Hayden was a Hollywood actor who I didn't even know had written a book about sailing. He was in <laughs> Dr. Strangelove. It's, it's a strangely neurotic book, but it has some really aphoristically smart things about living versus materialism and things like that. Um, so I, I just think that the, det- the fact that Sterling Hayden influenced him as well as the Twains and the Londons and the Kerouacs was an interesting wrinkle. Yeah, I'm honestly not sure how he came across Hayden initially. Um, but I, in some ways, I'm not totally surprised because Justin, he read quite widely and and had, you know, a fairly diverse bookshelf. Um, he was really fascinated in obviously the adventurers and the travel stories, but in a lot about spirituality. And um, so I'm not totally certain how he initially came across that, but uh, I wasn't surprised that that he he did, particularly that quote about, um, you know, monetary doing things for monetary gain versus doing them for, uh, for 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 our own enjoyment. Well, in addition to the social media factor, I'm um, I'm also curious about his spiritual quest because I think that there is a manner of seeking in any spiritual quest, but there's also a matter of finding peace. And it feels like he never did find peace. Like his, his spiritual quest was very much a first half of life spiritual quest, even when he was advancing into his thirties. And that feels like sort of part of the tension in his life, a part of the the conflict within himself. Um, How did he become this person who was performing his travels on social media. He was a tech bro for a while. And then suddenly it feels like fairly quickly he became a person who he's this good looking guy who had a big tattoo on his chest. So he had his shirt off a lot. He'd ride a motorcycle around. How did his persona on social media change the way he traveled Mm. um, in and walked through the world? Yeah, so he he started his Instagram account um, in in about 2013, and you know, and I think started it like a lot of people do, uncertain of how to use it and a little nervous about what to post. Uh, but it also reflected his life at the time. It was, you know, pictures out of the Shangri-La Shanghai window um, and going to the Tiger Temple in in Thailand, um, and you know, a little bit showing off of the things that he was doing. Like we all kind of, we all kind of got stuck in that mud at one point. Um, but very quickly it transformed. And particularly when he, he left that tech job and set out on the road, it, it completely changed to less show off about the places I visited and more, you know, follow my journey. And I think he really saw it as a tool to hopefully inspire people. But he very quickly people, you know, as you said, he was a very good looking guy. Um, he was riding this, you know, classic romantic motorcycle around the U S. Uh, and he also represented, you know, this, this, this ideology and this ethos of living that I think a lot of people aspire to, which is independent and free and doing what you want and not having a plan, um, letting the road guide you. And so very quickly, his social media followers grew, you know, exponentially. And he was he knew how to play the game. He took beautiful photographs. He created these in quite haunting, lovely, short videos, uh, wordless videos that he'd stitched together with his GoPro of his travels. Um, and and people connected with it. And, you know, he got, you know, I think at, at towards the end, you know, about 12,000, 11,000 Instagram followers, which in 20, you know, now that doesn't sound like quite that much, but in 2016, um, you know, it was, it was fairly significant and his YouTube page had, you know, over a million views and, and he was doing quite well. And he started to get interviewed by various podcasts, uh, and, and wrote for a couple travel blogs. And I think it was, I think it was the spirit behind, his travels that people really connected with. Um, was there any pushback uh, to this guy who was sort of performing a version of his own life, or was it mostly a positive um, reaction to these these adventures that he was uh, putting on Instagram and YouTube? I think it was mostly positive, but I think there were definitely people who questioned how he was traveling. Um, you know, Justin grew up idolizing Native American 
um, history and traditions, uh, which has a huge proponent uh, at the Tracker School and the Wilderness Awareness School. And I think now, you know, in, in 2021, 2022, we might look back on that and have a lot of questions about appropriation. And whereas I think when Justin was growing up in the 90s, and, and even though he kind of uncomfortably held a lot of that, even through uh, the early 2010s, um, there were people that would push back on that and would ask him, you know, about his impact as a traveler going to some of these very remote uh, areas and, you know, dressing the part. Well, it's, it's an interesting wrinkle just because there's, you know, obviously you're, you're creating a narrative by sh- showing a certain part of your life online. There is the appropriation angle. Um, one interesting thing, a quote from your book, he's, when he was young, he said he wished he was Lakota warrior killed in battle. Um, in his fantasies. Uh, And I just think it's interesting how nobody ever fantasizes being a good Lakota farmer or a good Lakota husband, right? It's always sort of this heroic narrative that you apply to any vision of how things are. I think another matter is uh, in, in, in sort of performing himself on social media is the idea of authenticity, which I know is a question he struggled with. But when I showed my wife yesterday the video of him in the cave, my wife, who's roughly the same age as him, didn't like it because it felt to her inauthentic. You know, she saw this mm. handsome guy with his shirt off, you know, preparing a cave who had obviously set a camera on a tripod and that rubbed her the wrong way. So how did, how thoughtful was Justin about the stories he was telling? How conflicted was he when he became a person who was suddenly performing his life for an ever-increasing audience? It's a really interesting question and I and I explore it uh, at various points in the book and and I think you know you mentioned his his kind of dream and fascination with being that Lakota, Lakota warrior or Lakota uh, uh, scout or shaman and I think from a very young age and this was something that he held on to perhaps longer than most was this quite childlike uh, fascination with with that ultimate hero with the the scout and the shaman and the the holder of knowledge and the you know the ultimate skilled survivalist person and a lot of kids you know I had that as a little kid growing up uh, you know in British Columbia but I grew out of that you know by the time I got to high school and 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 into my early twenties and I think Justin really held on to that desire to to live that kind of life that was was larger than any one person, that it wasn't just somebody who has a job and a family, it was someone who does great things. And I think that that inspired him and that really pushed him to create these stories for himself, but also for his following online. And I think, you know, the tension that you mentioned was was growing over the, his final few years, was you know, am I doing these things purely for my own enjoyment? Am I going to live in a Himalayan cave for three weeks with minimal supplies and little food purely because I want to find something, because I want to see what is provoked in that stay, in that extreme, uh, in that extreme experience? Because I really personally want something out of that. Or am I doing it because I'm going to take this incredible photograph and the photograph is beautiful. I'm going to take this incredible photograph and post it on Instagram, and everybody is going to go crazy for it and think I'm, I'm doing something wonderful and get tons of likes. And I think he was torn, I think, until the very end. And I talked with a lot of people who met him in the Parvati Valley in India before he, he set out on this final journey. And he didn't know that his final journey with this sadhu, with this Hindu holy man, to this holy lake, you know, at 13,000 feet in elevation at the glacial source of this holy river, whether he was doing that journey purely because he wanted to see what was at the end of that river and what he could find, what could inspire him in those high mountains, or whether or not he was going to return with this epic tale of great adventure with a Hindu holy man that his followers were going to eat up. And I think he ultimately was, was, was quite tormented by, by that question and that conflict. I think on these platforms too, there's sort of a diminishing returns question too. Like once you have this amazing story, how are you going to top it? And when do you 
perform yourself as the person who settles down and lives a quieter but more centered life. Um, that's something we can come back to as we sort of explore the mystery of what happened to him. But you mentioned the Parvati Valley. That was a part of India that by reputation was sort of a Bermuda Triangle of sorts for backpackers. How did that come about? Yeah, it's it's this. So I had heard of the Parvati Valley when I first went to India in, in 2008, but I never visited there. And but it had this reputation. It was of being this incredibly beautiful, isolated corner of the Himalayas. Um, that's quite small. It just has this cluster of villages that goes up and the road ultimately kind of fades into into hiking trail that goes up to this this glacier. And people go there for spiritual reasons. It's a pilgrimage destination for Hindus and Sikhs. And but it's also an incredible trekking location. So people go there to hike and explore the mountains. But it also has this long, long, decades-long reputation to, of a producer of some of India's best hash. So it has been on the drug trail uh, for travelers going all the way back to the hippie trail years in the 60s and 70s. And But what I had found uh, is that the valley has this very dark reputation that going back to the early 90s, a, there's been this string of very mysterious disappearances of, of foreign backpackers and tourists, uh, about one every year. Hmm. And, you know, they're written about in the media um, occasionally, um, and some of them are written on blog posts or travel forums like India Mike, which is a very popular India travel forum. And I had heard about some of these stories and was very curious about it. And so when I came across that that small news article about Justin and realized that he was the latest person to disappear in this long history of disappearances, I knew I had this incredible history that I could dig into. And so there's quite a quite a long section in the book about about the Parvati Valley and this dark chapter, this dark aspect of this really beautiful place. And I spent a lot of time researching in archives in in Indian media you know, interviewing family members of people who've disappeared there, finding all these blog posts, trying to put these, interviewing police officers that covered these cases and investigated these cases, and trying to put the pieces together of who these people were, why they had gone to the Parvati Valley of all other places, and what ultimately happened to them. I went, uh, during my Indi time in India, I know that uh, Manali, in that northern part of India, is a popular backpacker town. I went to a place called Kaza, which I believe is in the Spiti Valley. Yes. And it's not far away from there. But to my knowledge, that part of India is not known for disappearances, even though it is very close and very mountainous. And I don't know about the hash, but I would imagine it would uh, attract a lot of outdoor adventurers. What makes the Parvati Valley unique from adjacent places um, like Manali or uh, – the Spiti or, or Kulu, other places up there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's, you know, people, tragically, backpackers um, find themselves in, in challenging situations all over the world. And, and tragically, some people, you know, go hiking and become lost or, or are robbed and murdered, you know, in cities and in locations all around the world. But there was something very special and, and unique about the Parvati Valley in that, one, there was so many people who had died there, hmm. but, but that they had completely disappeared. You know, Goa down in the south of India is a very, very popular backpacker destination for its incredible beaches. And there's been a lot of cases of tourists being robbed there and, and even murdered there. Um, but their bodies don't completely vanish or their, their trail doesn't completely go, go run dry and, and, and evaporate. And that was really curious about the Parvati Valley is that most of the people who've disappeared there, their bodies have never been found. And there's very, very little evidence or, or anecdotes about what might have happened in their final days. And so, it, you know, that's why it has kind of earned itself this unfortunate nickname as India's backpacker Bermuda Triangle because people literally disappear and and that you know there's a lot of reasons why why that might have happened um and why there's been so many disappearances there 
And partly it is a very, very isolated place. So people can walk off the trail and become lost and ultimately succumb to the elements. But it also has all of these other factors that I think encourages people to push themselves beyond what they might do in Delhi or Goa or elsewhere, or maybe even in Manali or in Kaza, and encourages them to step off the beaten track and go on the on the hike solo uh, that they may not be fully equipped to do, or to, you know, smoke a lot of hash and befriend a sadhu who, you know, promises you wisdom if you follow him into the mountains. And so it has this really unique set of forces that I think is very alluring to a lot of people, but also very encouraging them to step out of their comfort zone and potentially push themselves to to a degree that they wouldn't do elsewhere. Well, befriending a sadhu is a plot point in Justin's story, and I want to get back to that. But first, I'm curious about the concept of India syndrome, which I know less about than like Paris syndrome or Stendhal syndrome. But it feels like there's a certain geographical isolation to, to places like the Parvati Valley, but there's also a mindset that some people bring to India, not that Justin was suffering from India syndrome, but what is India syndrome specifically? And how does that affect the attitudes that people bring to a place like India? Yeah, so India syndrome is this, it's not a clinical diagnosis, not an official diagnosis, but it's this this spectrum of behavioral changes that uh, some psychiatrists and psychologists in the early 80s, uh, primarily this French psychiatrist um, who was posted at the French embassy in in Bombay uh, in the mid 80s, began noticing in travelers. So he would see them when they first arrived and they would put their passport into safekeeping at the embassy. And then he would see them six months later when they had finished their journey and would pick up their passport to fly home. And he began noticing these sometimes benign, but sometimes very serious and very severe behavioral changes in in these travelers. And on the benign end, it it was things like very extreme culture shock, um, disorientation, um, you know, being very uncomfortable in certain situations at that time and still dabbling in drugs that you wouldn't necessarily do back home. Um, And and at the more extreme end, he began noticing people who would would push themselves or embark on some kind of spiritual journey or come to India with some reason that they want to explore there. And often it's a, a trauma that they want to get beyond or a big answer that they want, they want, a big question that they want answered. And they end up becoming so enthralled by India that he was found people who, you know, had were walking naked uh, along the streets and had covered their bodies in ash and and had given themselves over to to becoming a sadhu or people who had believed they were a god reincarnate or a spirit, a Hindu spirit. And so some very, very, very quite serious transformations that people were undergoing. And, you know, it often said it sounds almost like, well, how could this, how could India do this? How can a country inspire these kinds of changes? But it was happening so often that he wrote a book about it and documented all of these cases. And I went to India and interviewed a couple of psychologists who, one of them said, works in Delhi, said that he sees about a foreigner every week, a traveler, foreign traveler every week come into his office who is suffering from some version of India syndrome. And some people are so extreme that they they forsake all their belongings, they find what they are looking for at the end of their rainbow, and they have no desire of ever returning home. Hmm. Um, was there any overlap with Justin? And I guess a second part of this question would be, why did he end up in the Parvati Valley after all of these amazing adventures he'd already had? I think, and I wanted to include the the section about India syndrome to talk about what lures travelers to India above all other places and what happens to them when they arrive. And I think, so I, 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 and I was careful not to say Justin was suffering from India syndrome because it's that I, I can't do that as a writer, you know, he would have to have gone to a psychiatrist and being, and be, uh, be seen by him, uh, by seen by them. But I think that Justin fit into some of those categories 
as somebody who had gone to India specifically because, you know, Justin's father went there in the in the late 70s and had this incredibly illuminating moment up in Kashmir that really changed the course of his life. And and I think Justin had grown up with India in his subconscious as a place of awakening and a, a place of transformation and really wanted to find what he was looking for. And as you said earlier, that Justin spent a lot of time in Thailand and, you know, he'd been to Nepal a couple of times before and traveled uh, to to Southeast Asia and Indonesia a couple of times. But there's this one one quote that Justin said to a traveler who I interviewed and Justin said that India was where he was going to find his other wall. And I think he went looking for that wall, and I think he was hoping to push through it. And that wall of, you know, can I live this life, this free life forever? Or do I ultimately have to transform once again and return home? Um, and I think he was really, I think India occupied this place in his mind of I will find that answer there. I will not only hit that wall, but I will be able to push through it. And the Parvati Valley, you know, he had heard about it from a number of other travelers who he met along the road as this place of spirituality, of this place of of high mountains and isolation. So it, it fit into a lot of things that that identified, uh, just identified with and was 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 looking for. Um, so in some ways, I'm not totally surprised that he ended up there, but you know, we've all been on the road and had these twists of fate where somebody mentions some place and off we go and we, you know, based on some tip. And I've done that countless times in India. And and ultimately, some may call it fate, some may call it chance, but he end, that's where he ended up. Um, but interestingly, he didn't spend a few days there. He didn't spend a week there and turn around and head elsewhere. He... He spent about a month living in living in this cave up at this holy site near these holy hot springs and set out on this three week journey. So out of his six month visa that he had in India, he was he was going to spend, you know, almost half, at least half there, which is a remarkable thing for somebody who has traveled so much uh, to find a place that they want to spend that much time in. Well, I'm curious about that timeline uh, for a number of reasons, but one interesting detail about this specific adventure that he designed for himself is that it involves a sadhu. Um, and so describe sadhus generally, and then this guy, Rawat, I believe his name, um, how did Justin meet him and what was the appeal there? Because in retrospect, Rawat seems a little bit sketchy. Yeah, so sadhus and and sadvis, if, if they're female, um, are Hindu ascetics. So they're people who have renounced their belongings um, and embarked on a spiritual quest to find moksha, um, the state of, of enlightenment. And you often see them in India and Nepal uh, with long, you know, matted dreadlocks often just wearing, you know, a wrap around their waist or a loincloth, um, carrying some religious artifacts, uh, you know, necklaces around their chest. Um, sometimes their bodies are covered in ash. Uh, but it is, it is a Hindu, it is a, a religious order uh, that you join. And there's many, many different, um, uh, different kind of uh, classes or orders within sadhus. So some some follow Shiva, some follow Vishnu, and all sorts of different Hindu gods. Um, and they all are slightly different. And and they've been around for centuries, uh, millennia. Um, you know, Marco Polo noticed them. He called them something slightly different, but noticed them when he traveled there in, in the 14th century. Hmm. Um, and so when travelers go there, there are these incredible embodiments of spiritual devotion. But they also are just these incredible images and you see you see their portrait on the cover of National Geographic magazine um, and uh, or on textbooks and everywhere because they, they sort of be, have become these icons of spiritual India, these personifications of of somebody who has found their path and devoted their entire life to to walking it. And so they can be incredibly alluring and I've I met hundreds along the way and some of them, are very genuine and are have very interesting things to say about spirituality, about their journey, 
And some of them over time, and as more travelers and tourists have be, have gone to India and become drawn to them, they've realized that that they can make a bit of money off of travelers, that it's, you know, what's in it for them if the traveler is pointing their DSLR camera in their faces and then selling that, that photograph for thousands of dollars. Um, so they've started, you know, I've, I met some in Nepal that, you know, want 100 rupees if you want to take their picture. Um, and in some cases, what has happened is that some of these sadhus have become what have, what's known as uh, business babas. Baba is a term that just means father. It's sort of an, an honorific. And they're people who are whose spiritual quest is may not be fully authentic or may not be fully genuine and dress the part because they know they can they can make some money off of tourists. And that question floated around this sadhu that Justin met uh, in the summer of 2016. And while Justin was living in his cave, every day he would walk down to these hot springs. Uh, and on one occasion, there's this man, this, this sadhu, who is living in this stone hut just beside the hot springs who beckoned him in. And for three weeks, Justin would spend almost his entire day with this sadhu. He became completely enthralled with this man and would sit on a reed mat on the floor of this hut across the fire from him. And even though the sadhu didn't speak a lot of English and Justin didn't speak much Hindi at all, they developed this relationship. And uh, often what happens is you have a sadhu who takes a, a chela, a um, a student. And so Justin would sweep the floor and wash the dishes um, after they would drink chai or or eat kheer, this, this Indian rice pudding. And Justin became, you know, a student of his in a lot of ways, even though they had this language barrier. And so they spent about a month together up there. And just and ultimately the sadhu in Justin's telling, which he posted about online, the sadhu invited him on this pilgrimage, this three or four day trek beyond uh, the end of the trail up into the higher mountains, up to this holy lake called Mantalai Lake, the glacial source of the Parvati River, invited Justin on this trek, which was Justin said was going to last about, about three weeks. And that was the trek that Justin never ultimately returned from. The sadhu did, uh, but Justin, Justin did not. And this is where I become curious about the timeline because his last YouTube video was posted on August 19th, 2016. I believe his last Instagram post was two days later. Also on August 19th, Justin messaged me on Facebook. Um, mm -hmm. he, I, mean, I, it's, I don't remember it at all. You don't, I, I've met a lot of travelers who've approached me because of my writing. He seemed super interesting. We had a friend in common. Um, and so what was happening around, I mean, this is sort of a balance. He obviously had to have an internet connection to message me and post a YouTube video on August 19th. Um, how was he balancing the performance versus the spiritual aspect of this? And what is the timeline? What, when was he last in touch with anyone? So he, after the three weeks that he spent completely isolated in his cave, and I've been up to this place called Kirganga and I found Justin's cave and only on a very, very good day can you get one bar of cell reception up there. Most days you can't get anything. So when he was in his three weeks or a month cave, he was completely cut off from cell reception. But when the sadhu invited him on this pilgrimage, Justin descended to the villages where you can get cell reception and Wi-Fi to restock. He had some food to purchase. He wanted to purchase a tarp. And so that's when he uploaded his final video that's when he posted his final images to Instagram and before he returned up to the area that didn't have cell service. But during that time, and I think it's so interesting that he messaged you because he was an enormous fan of your book and he carried it around with him like a Bible and quoted from it and recommended it to so many people. Hmm. I think it's so interesting who he messaged in those final days before he, he went on this pilgrimage. And one of the one of the questions, one of the big questions, and we've talked about social media and the truth that lies in what we post. But one of the big questions that after Justin disappeared, he posted one of his final lines to his blog to to Facebook was, 
I'm going on this journey. If I don't come back, don't look for me. And I think a lot of people took that seriously. He punctuated the line with a winking emoji to kind of say, you know, this is tongue in cheek. I'm going on this big spiritual journey. Don't look for me, blah, blah, blah. But a lot of people took that seriously. And I think when you look at who he contacted in his final days, I think it's very interesting because he, if I was going to if I was going to go on a three week journey, absolutely. I'd call my my mother and father, and I would let them know where I'm going and how long I'm going to be. And, you know, I'd message maybe a few other people. But Justin went through this string of phone calls where he was calling, you know, ex-girlfriends and best friends and obviously his mother and father. But then he started messaging people that had really inspired him. He messaged you and sent you a message in his final days. He messaged another author and world traveler who had deeply inspired him over the years And it was almost like one read could be that he was tying up loose ends, that he he knew. And one traveler who I met in his final days said that Justin had had kind of a premonition that something was going to happen, either positive or negative on this journey. And it was almost like he knew something terrible, potentially, or challenging was going to happen up there. And he wasn't going to not message the author that had inspired him so much. And so he sent you a message. And I think that's so interesting that who he messaged at what time that he really felt like he wanted to, he wanted to make sure that this opportunity to send a message to you uh, was not missed. Well, it's interesting, like his tone is pretty normal. I didn't flag it as a weird message. Um, Of Mm -hmm. course, I had to go back and find it. And then I did the math and I realized it was among the last of his missives. It was the first time I'd heard from him, but he said, I read Vagabonding many years ago and just wanted to say that it helped me live the free life. It's the only book I recommend when people want practical advice and inspiration for a wandering life. And he mentions our mutual friend and then he says, thanks for taking the time to write it. it that's a fairly straight, it doesn't sound like a grim, this is my last message ever message. Mm-hmm. Um, yet... He chose that time. He he'd known about the book for a long time, but he chose that time to contact me. Um, and so I guess that's a part of this mystery. What's your take on this? Did was it a premonition? Was he fatalistic and and didn't want to come back? Um, did he intentionally go missing and he's still out there? Um, it just seems I, I'm just sort of a strange spectator to this because I didn't. That was the first I'd heard from him. But the timing in this timeline just seems fascinating in retrospect. What was in his? What was going through his mind? You know, ultimately, you know, I interviewed as many people as I possibly could. Um, the people, the backpackers who had met him in the Parvati Valley, uh, people who stayed at a nearby cave with him uh, up near Kirganga all the way up to shepherds who encountered him on this final trek to try to get a sense of what was in his mind. And ultimately, I will never know perfectly what's in his mind. But I do know that he expected a lot from this journey. And I think that may be a reason why he he messaged people like you and former girlfriends and is that I think he knew that this was going to be a big moment in his life. And maybe there was worry that at the times when he has previously or he had previously pushed himself to such extremes, maybe he had near-death experiences. And there are, there are several moments in his life where he, he was in a terrible car accident when he was a kid. But he also had these moments where he pushed himself to greater extremes than he necessarily felt comfortable and had moments where he nearly died. And I think maybe he realized that, and in his final blog post, he said, this is going to be one of the most challenging things I've ever done. And I think we all kind of have those questions in our mind. Am I pushing myself too far? If this is one of the most challenging things I've ever done, could this be tragic? May I, is it possible that I may not come back from this? And what do I want to say to the, to the people that mean a lot to me, whether it's my mom or an author that inspired me? And so I think, I think more about what, I think I take less about what he said to you uh, in the words, but more about when he said it. Hmm. And I think that is very, very interesting that 
he knew about your book for, for many, many years and was deeply inspired by it. But it was one of the last messages he sent out, this, this set of messages to people. And that says something to me. Ultimately, we don't know fully whether or not Justin intended the line, don't look, if I don't come back, don't look for me fully. But because, and I find this really fascinating, because India particularly has this long history of people who've gone there, found what they were looking for, and cut ties from home, and transformed themselves anew. I think there was this burning question for people when he disappeared, of maybe Justin is still out there. Maybe he did find what he was looking for, and he gave away all his belongings and continued on to the trail into the high mountains, and maybe he's still out there. One of his friends said, you know, if anybody could do that, it would be Justin. Hmm. He had the skills to be able to survive in a lot of different climates. He had the desire and the dedication and the intention to be able to do something potentially as extreme as that. You know, I think a lot of people also said, you know, he would never have done that to his mom, for example. Um, and he would never have done that to some of his close friends to completely forsake his, his, his previous life and to, to, step out, to step into something new. But I think for a lot of people, that question lingered. And it was something that, you know, I went back twice uh, to do a lot of reporting in the Valley. And it was hard not to follow in his footsteps and to occasionally look over my shoulder, uh, even, mm. even three years after he had disappeared. So how can we best construct what happened next? He messaged me and some other people. He uploaded some of his last social media posts, and then he hiked away and nobody has seen him since. So what were you able to piece together of what happened next by your best reckoning? It's interesting because he, he set off into a place that, that had no internet connection, no cell connection, um, he would have needed a, a satellite phone to get a message out. And so, you know, as a, as a journalist and an author following in his, in his footsteps, having his social media was this incredible trail to follow with timestamps and photographs and comments and people commenting and saying it was great to meet you in that village that I could then message them. His final few weeks are a big mystery. But what I was able to do is in my reporting on the ground is to try to find the people who may have crossed his path at that time up there. And so I found this, this trekking group, this group of Polish trekkers who had uh, taken a picture, taken pictures with him with these two, these two Indian trekkers um, who had joined them. And it were these, one of the final photographs that I could find that are the final photographs of Justin still alive. Um, and so I interviewed those trekkers and, and uh, who, what did Justin say when he was up on that up on that trek? Uh, what was his state of mind? And at that point, they said something really interesting, which was that they had reached this holy lake, but that the sadhu had wanted to turn around immediately and Justin wanted to stay for weeks up there. And that the two of them had had some kind of confrontation, possibly physical, definitely verbal, and a disagreement on how long the journey was going to be and what this experience was going to be. And ultimately the sadhu left and Justin stayed for at least a little bit of time longer at this lake. And one other person who I spoke to who met with Justin before he departed said that his intention, Justin's intention was to, once he reached the lake, once, he, once his guide had taken him to this spot, he was going to tell his sadhu, his guide, to go home, and he was going to stay there for weeks on his own. And so there's all these different theories and all these different leads for me that I that I followed um, that led to a lot of different questions. Did Justin turn around and come back with the sadhu when the sadhu and this porter that they hired were, were inter uh, interrogated by the police? Is their story true, or are they hiding something? And then I had to go and corroborate their stories with talking with other people, these shepherds that I found who had met Justin along the trail, this other sadhu who had seen them go up to Mandalay Lake and had seen only the sadhu return. 
to kind of try to corroborate their story. Does it make sense in the timeline? Does it make sense for the dates? And does it line up with what these other stories, uh, what these other story, the other accounts that I uncovered? And ultimately, there are a lot of inconsistencies for what the Sadhu told the investigators and and told Justin's mom and, his, and one of his friends who flew out to India to search for him in the fall of 2016. And those inconsistencies raise a lot of questions about the truthfulness of the sadhu and the honesty um, of the sadhu. And, and ultimately, I think there will always be a number of questions that still linger about what might have happened up there. And I think that ultimately ends the book and ends Justin's story on a very hopeful note is did he find what he was looking for? Did he continue on up into the mountains, having the sunset at his back and continue on his journey and is still out there somewhere traveling? Well, one interesting thing from my perspective about Justin's story is that it, it came on my radar literally because he messaged me. And then I was sort of paying attention to the articles, maybe the same articles that you found about him after his disappearance. And then eventually his adventuresofjustin.com domain disappeared. Um, and so I've had a, a Scrivener file for this podcast since before I knew of your book, because I just thought it was, it was really interesting how he created this persona and then, you know, his blog was gone a few years later. Um, in, in a way, your book and its speculations will become his legacy in a way, plus his frozen in time YouTube and Instagram accounts. Um, mm -hmm. how does he live now for, for you and the people who followed him or the people who stumbled across him? What kind of legacy did he create? It's, it's interesting. I, there's been, there's been people who in the years after Justin disappeared, particularly in the first or second year, there were people who didn't know that he had disappeared and there were people who still stumbled upon his Instagram account or his Facebook page or his YouTube page and would comment as if he were still alive and would say things like, where are you going next? Amazing adventures, loved your video. What's, what's on the horizon for you? And so I think because he had created these social media accounts, they do live on in a way. They are these incredible snapshots of a life. And I think that's a really beautiful thing for people to to hold on to, for friends of his to visit, for people who followed him on social media to perhaps go back to. But I think for me, you know, I wrote this article for Outside Magazine that has now become this book. And it's been, honestly, it's been, it's been such a pleasure to continue to tell his story that Justin, he himself started. And, you know, it hasn't been an easy journey to try to find, to try to follow in his footsteps and find where the truth lies in his story. But ultimately, I think Justin leaves behind a legacy of somebody who was never satisfied, was never totally content with his lot in life. And I think a cynical read of that would be that that was a very kind of nasty or harmful dissatisfaction. But I find it quite inspiring that there is always a new place to visit, that there is always a new book to read or a new, a new way of thinking. And that somebody in the next village over or the next valley over can perhaps give that to me. And I think when we are fully content, we stop learning. And I think that's one thing that Justin truly embodied was to continue to search for why we are on this earth. Why, what are we connected to that's perhaps bigger than us? However you may call it, God or Shiva or whatever. And what does every step lead to? And I think for him, he want, really wanted to make sure that he just did not stop walking. And I take a lot of, a lot of inspiration out of that. It's interesting how this, we all live in a web of stories, and one of the stories he was very aware of was that of Christopher McCandless. And I believe 
one of his last posts said something along the lines of tomorrow into the wild, which is a very meta reference. Um, I don't, and I think that Justin respected McCandless, but didn't want to become McCandless. And yet there's this narrative cycle where now he is a parallel story. So what might you say to someone who, who idolizes Justin in the way that Justin respected McCandless? Um, what does his story tell us in both in terms of how it might warn us and inspire us? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, even, you know, McCandless's journey and John Krakauer's book has inspired a lot of people to follow in McCandless's footsteps, to head off into the Alaskan bush, to retrace his footsteps to the bus. And there have been cases of people who've lost their lives or had to be rescued because they they were so determined to follow in this person's footsteps that who inspired them so much. But that ultimately led them into a very dangerous, very similarly dangerous situation that McCandless found himself in. And I think there is also a similar lesson here that, that perhaps we don't need to go to such extremes to find what we are looking for. We don't necessarily need to give up all our belongings and travel to India to find that enlightening moment or that clarifying moment for our lives. We don't need to trek off to 13,000 feet in elevation with a holy man to you know, sleep out under the stars for weeks in the hope that the clouds are going to part. That sometimes those moments can arise in our backyard or in our town or in our city or in a much more in a much less extreme uh, journey. And I think there is also a bit of a warning here that, that there is a lot of danger that, li- that lies at the extremes. And for the people that want to, to seek that out, that they should go with great caution. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Harley Rustad's book, Lost in the Valley of Death, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Cedar Van Tassel, who also does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Deviate with Rolf Potts.